Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Thank you. Okay, um, given our time limits, we don't have uh, time to go around the room and have everybody introduce themselves, which we would ordinarily love to do if we had three or four hours. I uh, do want to do kind of a union roll call. I see in the House uh, representatives of my own new uh, TNG, CWA local up in the Bay Area, the Pacific Media Workers Guild. I want to thank uh, you guys for coming. Uh, Way in the back, I see the uh, IWW delegation has uh, just arrived. Do we have any other proud uh, Wobblies here? All right, all right. <laughs> uh, we have met the teachers, healthcare workers. What? Okay, more AFT members in the house. We have steel workers here, I believe. Do we have the steel worker? Delegation arrived on their way, stuck in LA traffic. ILWU, represented by distinguished alum, uh, Brother Peter Olney. Uh, what other unions do we have? And AFT. And, uh, Unite, here Unite Here Retired. AFT Local 2334 in New York City. Brother Gene, thank you. Uh, any other union that? CFT. Okay, well, you know. Uh, yep. Great. From in Australia. Okay, well, you get the award for coming furthest to this event. Fantastic. Well, welcome. Welcome. We're going to have a great discussion here. When we get to the discussion, I want to thank everybody else uh, for participating in the roll call. Uh, Brother Rand is going to take over, talk a little right. bit about Jaws with Justice. Uh, that's it? We're done with Save Our Unions? No, no, that's... You're coming back. <laughs> We're bringing him back. I'm also the timekeeper because he's okay. still on active duty as a union official, and we know uh -oh. what the leading occupational disease of full-time union officials is. Uh, Long-windedness, but Rand is going to be very brief. And because he also wants to get to the Q&A as quickly as possible. Hi, it's, uh, my name is Rand Wilson. I work as an um, organizer and communicator for the Service Employees International Union in Local 888 in Boston, Massachusetts. It's a local of about 8,000 uh, public service workers. But I have a long and checkered career in the labor movement. And um, tonight, just wanted to, or this afternoon, just wanted to talk briefly about this book. Uh, which I hope you'll buy and take with you, um, which is really, uh, how many of you have heard of Jobs with Justice? Yeah. It's not here in Los Angeles, um, but I don't think, uh, the, the formation isn't as important as the mission, in my opinion. And the mission of Jobs with Justice 
is about solidarity and about workers' rights. And 25 years ago, when we kicked this organization off, uh, that was a kind of a radical idea. Um, <clears throat> how many of you have gone to somebody else's picket line besides your own? How many, yeah, good. How many of you have uh, stood out and protested against, uh, you know, a bad trade deal or uh, NAFTA or uh, wage theft, you know, community, community issues? Yeah, just keep your arms up. So, so what is that about? Why do you, go, why do, you do that? Why did you go? A victory for one is a victory for all. Solidarity, what, what, for justice. But why do we need people to show up for each other's thing like that? What, what difference is that going to make? There's strength in numbers. Yes. What else? No other answers? Ah, that's kind of what I was hoping somebody would say. Um, it's important that we build a community and a culture of sticking together and fighting together so that we can, can win. Because we can't win on our own, right? And that's as true today as it was 25 years ago. We can't win. Hey, Dave. Teamsters are in the house. All right. Um, so we, we can't win on our own. And that's the, really the mission about Jobs with Justice, which was that it, we'll be there rank and file to rank and file five times a year to make a pledge to show up for somebody else's fight. Think about that. It's not just for the job of the union leaders, the staffers, the the, you know, the officers, the people with status in the union. This is a rank and file activity that we all have to be engaged in. 25 years ago when we started to do that, we were called communists, socialists. You know, you were labeled because it was seen as a, a, a as like a radical idea. What are you doing here? You know, why, why, why are we mobilizing like that? It was condemned. And fortunately, through the work of the Jobs with Justice and, you know, thousands of other people that have realized that we have to stick together uh, for workers' rights and make that an issue. Uh, it's, it's no longer, you know, seen as, as that, but it's just as necessary as ever. So my chapter in this, this is a 180-page book. I wrote just three pages. <laughs> So I can't take much credit for the for authorship in the book. Uh, it was a very short story, but uh, uh, the chapter that I wrote just describes the process of bringing the local head of the Teamsters Union and uh, Teamster members into a low-income neighborhood, Roxbury in Boston, and working together around a a, a, a campaign in the city with. Uh, leaders in that community about uh, the discharge of one worker that had been fired unfairly and building that relationship that didn't exist uh, and in fact was quite tense between you know the trade union movement and the African-American community in Boston and uh, you know it was a it was a it was a it was a very special moment in the uh, in the in the life of the worker that was fired and it was a special moment in the life of our coalition 
which could begin to draw those elements together. Um, but all of the other chapters in the book are really uh, the summation of this kind of work that's been going on for uh, 25 years under the auspices of Jobs with Justice, but in so many other places and so many other ways. And the lessons in here are relevant and pertinent to, to all of the work that those of you that raised your hands have been doing over and over and over again. I think the significance of Jobs with Justice is simply that it's tried to make that work uh, embedded in the community, permanent in the community, and reciprocal in the community. And uh, so if there's one thing that, you know, that I would like to leave with you today is that, that we have to build structures of solidarity and mutual aid and support that are going to be sustained and not have to be reinvented every time there's a crisis. Because there's more and more crises, there are always going to be crises, and why should we have to reinvent the wheel to, to, to mobilize our membership? We have a long ways to go to get more members to understand that the fight is beyond their, their bargaining unit, their local, their industry, their union, and that, that it's about all of us. How many of you are labor educators? We've just been at a labor education conference. Yes, so the, acknowledging the labor educators in the room, uh, you know, a terrific meeting here in LA of uh, several hundred labor educators from uh, around the country and around the world, and clearly the message there about solidarity and mutual aid and support is, is a part of the mission of, of the labor education community. So I think I'll wrap up there. I don't think I have much more to add except if things come up in the Q&A. It's been a, it's been a, a pleasure and a, um, you know, an honor to be, I'm, I was the director of our local Jobs with Justice um, coalition in, the, in Massachusetts. Gene uh, Carroll, who's in the back, was uh, my counterpart and colleague at the time. And the two of us were the first people that ever put, it, put together enough uh, uh, dues-paying members to the coalition to actually support a staff person. Uh, in the beginning of this coalition. And, you know, New York and Boston are the kinds of cities that have sufficient resources to build uh, support for a, a full-time staff person, which made a huge difference. And uh, if it wasn't for Gene, I wouldn't have had anybody to uh, commiserate with and to face the challenge of doing that together. Um, there was one other point, but I think I'll just wrap up there. Thanks very much. And um, uh, let's get into the Q&A as soon as Steve gets a chance to sell some of his books. <laughs> Book selling? But these books were free. Um, we've managed to, to uh, burn up 30 of our 60 minutes, so I'm going to keep this really short. I do want to recognize a few other very special people and institutions. Um, to have a bookstore event and a book, you have to have a publisher. And uh, I want to pay tribute to PM Press, a wonderful uh, left-wing new publishing house. Oakland. Some might even label it anarchist, but you know, I don't think we want to pigeonhole anybody too narrowly. Uh, Ramsey Canan, the founder of PM, could not be with us here today, but uh, has a wonderful line of books and a great network of people. Uh, check out their website, a lot of good stuff. Uh, my own publisher this time out for Save Our Unions is Monthly Review Press. How many Monthly Review subscribers? Oh, yep, all uh, over 60 types. And some <laughs> under 30s put their hand up. I recognized you right away. Monthly Review and Monthly Review Press is now 65 years old young. And, um, you know, one of the ways that we keep 
a socialist press alive is uh, by selling books and getting more people to subscribe to the magazine and contribute content for both future books and magazines. Um, I want to recognize Sister Susie Weissman, who I think is probably responsible for the huge turnout here tonight because her wonderful local radio show was good enough to let us make a last-minute PSA to direct people here to the store. Uh, Brother Bob Brenner is also here, uh, co-editor of a wonderful book that I had the privilege of contributing to a few years ago, published by Verso, called Rebel Rank and File, about the experience of 60s activists went into the labor movement in the 70s, what it was like, and the Teamsters, the auto workers, the steel workers, uh, uh, in a number of unions where uh, there were major rank-and-file insurgencies in the 1970s. 70s. All right, very quickly, Save Our Unions. Perhaps the title is a little plaintiff, a little pleading, but hey, we are in a tight spot, and that's going to be the subject of our discussion. Uh, very quickly, there's some material about the 70s, the rank-and-file movement, some of the terrain that we covered in Rebel Rank-and-File. Uh, there's some case studies of organizing the unorganized, uh, a long campaign that I was involved in a bit that is continuing uh, involving uh, CWA and Verdi, the, the German union, at T-Mobile, a major wireless uh, company. Um, there's a whole chapter inspired by the great uh, leadership of Brother Peter Olney here in recruiting uh, young people to function as salts, getting jobs in workplaces and helping to organize the unorganized from the inside. Maybe we can talk about that strategy, which the IWW, of course, has been doing uh, great work with, uh, producing terrific results at Starbucks. Um, resisting concessions, there's a whole chapter on that, uh, and a lot of recent developments that we could talk about, including the interesting struggle uh, against givebacks in Boeing, in Seattle, which has spawned a national reform movement in the, uh, in the machinist union. Uh, there's a whole section of the book about uh, strike strategy, uh, how strike tactics have changed somewhat, the bitter experience that uh, brothers and sisters that Rand and I have worked with for many years in New England, the IBW and CWA, uh, went through in 2011, 2012, in the most recent Verizon strike. Um, there's also, finally, a section, uh, a lot of material about NUHW and uh, uh, some bad trends in the healthcare industry, corporate wellness programs, and some problems with the Kaiser Partnership that uh, we have some folks here who work at Kaiser that can speak to with far more expertise than any outsider. Um, I also want to say, because this is topical, that there's a section of Save Our Unions about the need for greater independent political action, right? We've had some terrific examples. We now have a socialist city councilor up in Seattle, Kashama uh, Sawant. Um, in, in some parts of the country, we see labor becoming finally so estranged from the phony friends uh, who've let us down so many times the Democratic Party that union members in places like Ohio are running for office themselves. Uh, my case study is of the 35-year experience in Vermont, building a progressive movement, a viable third party uh, with a representation in both houses of the state legislature, city council members, an independent socialist senator, brother Bernie Sanders, who is now rattling the saber about running for president in some fashion, 2014, 15, 16, becoming a thorn in the side of uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, preventing her from uh, getting nominated in a form of uh, canonization that some people have in store for her. So uh, there's a brother here who <laughs> is an old friend of Bernie's from Vermont in 1971. Lots to talk about uh, related to that experience. I'm going to stop here and throw it open. One ground rule, since we have such limited time, and maybe the bookstore will give us a few more minutes or we don't have to cut off the discussion right at 6 o'clock. Uh, I'm going to follow the labor notes rules, which are I'm going to alternate 
calling on people between men and women, because we know how much men tend to dominate the discussion, as we've done so far already for 35 minutes. Uh, so I'll be looking for female hands, alternating with male hands, trying to keep a little list. And uh, we'll be trying to uh, prioritize everybody having a chance to say something before anybody gets second helpings in the Q&A. So who is first up to bat? The sister here, uh, you could identify yourself and uh, union connection, if any. Hey, hi. My name is Bonnie Coleman. I was a member of UTLA. I've been active in LA Scope, which is an organization that works with community-based groups and unions together. But my question is about um, what you cut past food workers and their, the, that whole movement is to push community <coughs> Uh, Brother uh, Rand's uh, union has uh, played a critical role in funding this effort. Do you want to? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> I think the fast food workers movement is great and long overdue. And I've been participating actively in my community to, you know, try to build support from uh, workers in Burger King and McDonald's and Wendy's and Kentucky Fried Chicken to uh, come out on strike and to participate. And uh, in a big part of, uh, uh, and I can only speak about what I've seen in Boston, but I'm aware that things are going on around the country uh, that are, look very similar. And I think the movement is growing, and I think we've got the attention of the news media and the public, and we've certainly got the attention of the, the rest of the labor movement and a lot of um, you know, like-minded people. Um, the strategy, you know, it seems to be mostly let's get people out and let's have a lot of press coverage, but I'm not sure I see uh, 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 you know, how, how we're actually going to build a sustainable organization that's rooted with the, uh, the workers and run by the workers themselves. And so I think in Boston, there's been a kind of a, a pushback from the community to take over the organizing and to root it deeper in our in, in the work in the community rather than having it run by SEIU uh, organizers who kind of come in and then they're distracted and go out. So we have the action and then there's no sort of follow through. So we're in the midst now of, of kind of trying to, and there's, there's no resistance to this uh, by SEIU in particular, but there is a kind of a push to take over the organizing and to make it deeper in the, in the community. And there's, when you query people about you know, well, hey, what's the plan? What's the strategy? I, I haven't heard it. So um, I think we're kind of inventing it as we go along. But I welcome the initiative and the effort because, you know, we're making something happen. We're getting people's attention. We're calling attention to low-wage uh, uh, worker abuse in America that's uh, rampant in the fast food industry. And the, from the picket lines that I've been on and the conversations I've had with uh, the workers that did come out and strike in those places, it's a transformative experience. Uh, strikes. When they're, when they're strategic and targeted and thought through and when we can get people back to work are a good thing. We need a lot more of them. Okay, let's hope that uh, candidate assessment doesn't uh, land Brother Rand back in the job market anytime soon. <laughs> I didn't think it was critical. No. That was, that was nuanced. Very balanced, Very balanced. nuanced. Yeah, that's political. Let's hope everybody thinks so. i save my ass. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's hear from somebody else. Good question. Yes, the brother, <laughs> the brother here who loaned us the, the watch for timekeeping purposes. So.
membership is at an all-time level, so you're aware of uh, the, the broader, uh, I don't know if this is something you touch on in your book, but the broader sort of history of uh, 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 the, the attack on you. Uh, I don't know, what, what can you say? But the, for instance, I, re I read, uh, forgive me, I, 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 and I can't remember the exact title, but there, there was a publication in the early 80s that was available to employers something about how to operate during strikes? Is this something mm -hmm. you're, 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 you're aware of? Yeah. Maybe, a, can you say something about Unfortunately, there's a whole library of such yeah. how-to manuals. An industry of attorneys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, folks, including some very distinguished ones in this room, who've written about the kind of big picture uh, trends and factors and forces that have uh, sadly marginalized uh, organized labor uh, in this country, uh, you know, over the last 40 or 50 years. And uh, certainly the development of a very sophisticated, uh, high-powered, uh, and too often effective and always well-funded uh, machinery to create uh, more and more of a union-free environment, as they call it, uh, is a part of what we're up against. I mean, it used to be uh, 20 or 25 years ago, uh, kind of identified as a as a cluster of union busting consultants. You know, the problem was when an employer hired specialists from the outside to defeat uh, a union organizing effort. I mean, so much of this union free environment stuff has now been institutionalized in the way workplaces are organized and run, the way the workforce has been restructured. Uh, that it's really not just a uh, a problem that the employer, and it is a problem, has hired Jackson Lewis or some other union-busting law firm to handle the negotiations or the deal with the NLRB the petition for representation. Um, you know, you're dealing with uh, much more systemic uh, efforts to make sure that workers don't have a collective voice at work. And, uh, uh, you know, I'll leave it at that, but that's, uh, it's gone a long way from the initial rudimentary how to keep a union out of the plant uh, to uh, you know, what we just saw uh, in very shocking fashion in, in Tennessee, where third parties, you know, uh, intervened in a representation election where a union pursuing the recommended strategy of neutralizing employer interference in a private sector representation vote uh, proceeded to lose the vote when the management was more or less neutral, but the outside parties, uh, local Republican officials and, and right-wing groups and uh, uh, others, uh, you know, uh, won the election for the anti-union side, so. All right, uh, female hand. Yes, uh, from down under. Um, I'm interested in the chapter you've got on independent political representation for labor. Um, uh, from an Australian perspective, or probably from a, even a sort of broader British law perspective, um, you were used to having a labor party or a social democratic party of some sort with union, direct union affiliation. Um, obviously, uh, in general terms, it's probably not a great deal better result than having the Democratic Party in, in um, government in the sense that you know that there's a Conservative Party that's completely loyal to the, the ruling class and then we've got a, a, a party that's sort of a bit torn between doing something to please us and but actually probably being loyal to keeping the system the way it is. Um, but do you think there's any prospect in this of some sort of, how do you see the prospect unfolding for the development of direct labor representation and how would you also see uh, learning the lessons of how labor in fact has sort of lost um, the ability to hold the labor parties accountable in those countries where they do exist. So how would, how would you see that unfolding in, in the life of what you've covered in the book? Great, 
uh, question. Lots of bridges to cross all at once. Uh, I'm going to defer oh, to Brother Rand. <laughs> no, let you me finish. The chapter. No, but uh, Rand in 2006 ran with labor backing uh, for uh, auditor of the state of Massachusetts, a guy who cannot balance his checkbook, was going to become <laughs> auditor of the state, auditing the books, uh, got how many votes? Uh, 390,000? Top, <laughs> top all-time vote-getter for a minor party in Massachusetts, about 20%. Okay. 390,000 votes? Yes, but half of them were Republicans because I ran in a race no, where there was... Let's not get hung up on the details. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, ran... Uh, has been in very involved in the Working Families Party, which is one attempt to develop somewhat of a more independent labor voice within the constraints of our two-party system. Uh, do you want to respond? I mean, you went out there and campaigned as a labor yeah, candidate. What was yeah, like? I mean, the, the strategy that a lot of us have been pursuing in this country is to try to deal with the dilemma of winner-take-all uh, politics. And, uh, you know, we have a system where if you vote for the left-wing candidate that you want, you risk perhaps electing the Republican nightmare that, that you don't want. And, uh, and in terms of, I'm, I'm willing to make that risk. You know, I'll vote the loony left. And uh, it's not a problem for me. But when, it goes, when you come to seeking institutional support and really building a mass base for a political alternative, you're not going to get union leaders and officials who have tremendous responsibilities about jobs and services for their members and, you know, uh, to, to take those kinds of risks and to back those kinds of candidates unless they see a way forward that isn't going to elect their nightmare enemy. And so the strategy of having a, uh, a cross-endorsement al uh, 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 alternative that where you can build a party that can nominate a Democrat but have your voters vote on an in, a separate ballot line so you can count your votes, see support, and perhaps build uh, uh, a base that at some point could be significant enough to, to make a challenge without electing, without being a spoiler. So uh, we call that, some people call it a fusion strategy. I've never really liked that word because it sounds like something nuclear. Um, I call it a cross-endorsement strategy. Um, it's practiced uh, very widespread in New York, and the Working Families Party in New York has had a tremendous amount of success, uh, you know, holding politicians more accountable and building, a, a building a, an alternative political party. They've made some interesting and controversial decisions that I've disagreed with. Uh, politics is like, you know, messy business sometimes. But they've certainly uh, got an incredible uh, political apparatus that's independent of the Democrats and uh, is, is, you know, it's pretty terrific. Um, six other states have that opportunity and the Working Families Party is pursuing uh, the cross-endorsement vote in uh, Connecticut and Oregon and uh, Missouri and Alabama where there are opportunities to do that. I'm not sure about Alabama. Um, so <clears throat> in a long story short, uh, where we don't have that, we're, we're, we're stuck playing the game inside of the primary. And uh, that's another discussion for another time. Let's get more hands. Okay, yes. American healthcare is a train, I actually think American healthcare is a train wreck. And when this president said, keep yep. your hospital, keep your doctor, you lie like crazy. I think there are a lot of young, uh, young Americans 
fabulous friend. From 18 to 25 years old, they brought me out of the health camp, even went to college. And I think it's the worst in the world. That is my opinion. Um, I guess the question, that, what's your comment? Well, my, my comment is I, I uh, uh, agree with you. Uh, in Save Our Unions, there's a chapter called Labor's Healthcare Muddle, and it talks about the emerging uh, labor backlash against Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, uh, uh, a labor uh, healthcare reform scheme that the labor movement, uh, you know, did a lot of membership mobilization to, to get through Congress. And uh, the impact of it so far on the organized part of the working class has not been very favorable. As a number of unions, uh, when they were meeting at the AFL-CIO convention here in Los Angeles last fall, pointed out, as uh, Unite Here has just pointed out in a devastating research report uh, about uh, the uh, uh, very negative impact of uh, the ACA on the, uh, the nonprofit, multi-employer, so-called Taft-Hartley uh, Trust, health plans that HRE, uh, that the building trades, that the Teamsters, many other unions have millions of members covered by and which are now being put at a disadvantage uh, under this law. So uh, yeah, I kind of predict that there is going to be an emerging rank and file backlash against this, that there's going to be some fallout within unions, but hopefully those of us, and I'm sure that's most people in this room who have been part of the movement for single payer, for Medicare for all, are going to find ways in our own unions to, uh, you know, link uh, this uh, backfiring, this boomeranging effect on union members and other workers uh, to a renewed and stronger movement for, uh, you know, getting single payer in some form at state or national level. There's a material in the book about the brave experiment to try to do that in Vermont. It's a multi-year one, uh, faces a lot of hurdles, in part because of the ACA's requirement that that state, which has already committed itself to the Medicare for All model, uh, has to set up a private insurance exchange for three years, which gives opponents of single payer uh, three more years to derail the train. So a lot of very detailed material on that. I think your observation is very important. Uh, my uh, son, son-in-law and daughter just returned for three years in El Salvador. I told them the deadline's coming up. You gotta sign up for the connector here. And they're web savvy people and they have yet to get covered after a week of, of struggle uh, through this bureaucratic maze. So it uh, doesn't bode well for what's going to happen to millions of others. Whatever good things, you know, the ACA has done, uh, you know, expanding Medicaid and so forth. Um, some other topics, some other people. Yes, the sister here. Um, as a historian and an activist, in, I am aware okay. of the history. I'm aware of the yep. history of labor struggle in an unequal and unjust society it has been largely rooted in the struggle, in the effort to get more um, in a capitalist society that is fundamentally organized around growth. What do you do, how do you deal with the analysis that is increasingly raised by environmental activists that argues that green jobs is not enough, that in fact growth itself is incompatible with the survival of humanity on a finite earth, acutely yeah. challenge finite earth. Yeah. How how do you speak to that long history and that that framing of labor struggles around getting more in a paradigm of growth? Yeah. With that argument. 
Well, um, you know, as a new neighbor of the Chevron Corporation in Richmond, California, <laughs> and a participant in last August uh, uh, summer heat uh, demonstration uh, organized by 350.org and, and local progressive and environmental groups in Richmond and the East Bay uh, brought 2,500 people out on the streets of Richmond, led by our green mayor to the gates of Chevron. Uh, there was a union contingent of four or five hundred, mainly nurses, some CWA people, uh, other university unions, uh, a lot of Unite Here people. Um, no steel workers from inside the plant because of the, you know, right. tensions that you're talking about uh, in terms of any real functioning local level Blue Green Alliance. And a lot of good people, certainly in the steel workers, many locals, uh, have tried to build on the great OCAW tradition of Brother Tony Mizaki uh, and have tried to link you know, workplace safety, occupational health concerns to the environmental impact of, uh, uh, of a lot of industries that, uh, you know, the, the globe cannot afford. Uh, but seeing this stuff play out in Richmond, it's very, very tough stuff because, uh, you know, a company like Chevron, if they use the fossil fuel that's still in the ground that they have rights to, you know, as Bill McGibbon told us in Richmond <laughs> last August, game over. Uh, but for the people that work in that plant, whether in the, they're in the steel workers or the building trades, uh, you know, there's a powerful constituency for jobs now because, you know, where are the other jobs if uh, the activities of Chevron at that facility or any other are, are scaled back as they sure need, need to be at some point if we're all going to survive, including the folks that, that work there. Um, you know, on the politics thing, I would direct people to the latest issue of Labor Notes, a good friend of us. A labor activist with many years of experience in labor notes ties, Brother Mike Parker, is now running. Everybody has got this politician bug these days. Running for mayor of Richmond, California, uh, hoping to succeed later this year. Uh, our great Green Mayor Gail McLaughlin, who is termed out, uh, Brother Mike is going to have to answer <laughs> in a number of candidates' forums very hard questions of the sort you have posed uh, about his position on Chevron, on jobs, uh, and on the between, uh, you know, the, the need for employment uh, in Richmond or anywhere else and the need to do something, uh, you know, to save the world from, from the effects of global warming. So, We're talking about more than global warming. Yeah, yeah, I guess I'm sort of fixated on the, uh, the fossil fuel piece of it because this view here from two summers ago is on the other side of the hill where I live now. So, all right, yes, the brother here. And wait a minute, and there was a was there another hand in the, the back? Blue, under blue the blue jersey. Okay, I, I keep losing you behind the tree, so you're next. Sorry. Yeah. Right. Um, you humorously referred to the uh, age of people who get the monthly review. <laughs> um, but I think in that is a truism with regard to the fact that unions are aging. If you look at the demographics of union members, and that's in part reflected upon what is unionized and what is not unionized. And I'd like to hear both of your perspectives on the opportunities and the chances for engaging young people in the union activity because of the prevailing framing of individuality, of personal uh, identity, that those are ways in which young people can be, you know, in a sense, drawn away from the idea of solidarity. I teach, I've got mm -hmm. graduate students, undergraduates, and it's not a, 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 always a pretty picture for the future. Uh, I'm going to toss the ball to somebody in the audience again who's under 30, who's uh, worked for. No, there are a few. Proportionately, we've got the same. Yes, yeah. Yvonne, do you want to speak to that from the perspective of someone who's worked for a mainstream union, 
who's worked for the Great Restaurant Opportunities uh, Center Network and uh, is a hardcore member of the IWW. How's that for multiple card carrying? And another respondent in the back there. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you very much. Um, the sister behind the tree. Yes. You might have to stand up because the tree is still. A <laughs> I so support the youth for coming out and doing leadership and the models that they're seeking. You'll entertain this question for a moment. What if it is too late to save the What if you advance too far into the old age, the accumulation of wealth is in the hands of people who need us on? What are some strategies that you can take? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I have a little uh, idea about that, and I brought literature. Just speaking to exactly to the point that you raised. <laughs> I, she was not a plant. But uh, it does give me a chance to get on the soapbox about something that I think is long overdue, which is we've got to address the broad concerns of the entire working class and the remnants of the labor movement that are still organized and still have resources have to lead that fight because we have the capacity, the expertise, and the resources to do it. But the fight can't just be about unions. The fight can't just be about uh, labor. The fight has to be about job security and workers' rights for all workers. And the, the, what's long overdue is, Peter, are you going to come up and talk about this? No. Oh. Um, what's, what's, I was hoping, uh, what's long overdue is, in a, is it a direct attack on the at-will standard that threatens every single worker in this whole country, regardless of whether you're in a union, want to be in a union or will never be in a union. The at-will standard is unique in this country from every industrialized country in the world where workers have just cause protections. And the labor movement needs to step up and wage a campaign, wage a campaign to win just cause protections for all workers, similar to what we enjoy in our collective bargaining agreements. The centerpiece of our agreement is the just cause provisions that says you have to have a reason to discipline or discharge an employee, a valid, good reason. You have to make the case. Every worker needs that. And failure to fight for every worker to have it, we will not be able to defend our collective bargaining agreements. I'm on the soapbox now. And, and that's a campaign that I hope everybody in this room will begin to take seriously and think about. How can we step up? at the legislative level, at the municipal level, with city and state contracts to begin to introduce a just cause for all standard in every employment relationship in this country. I got some hands. Okay, so we, got, uh, we just got a reprieve from our wonderful hosts, some more airtime here. 
but this uh, this uh, connection between uh, you know workers' rights legislation and uh, uh, you know running for office reminded me that a very good friend uh, had hoped to be here. She is an active candidate for uh, uh, county uh, uh, the Los Angeles County uh, Board of Supervisors. Uh, I, I don't want to date anybody as much as, you know, asking who's a subscriber to MR, but Dobie Gillis fans know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Sister Sheila Kuhl. Okay, so a number of the unions who are represented here have already endorsed uh, Sister Sheila, as they should. NUHW, the California Nurses. This is a woman who went to Sacramento and got nurse-patient staffing ratios passed, along with a lot of rank-and-file RN mobilization uh, uh, and great campaign work. Uh, was the standard bearer for single-payer, right? Not once, but twice, but always. How many people here are in a position to vote for Sheila? She is running against a twig in the Kennedy family tree, and as Bay Staters, we have dealt with this phenomenon many times of the second and third generation of the Klan running in very entitled fashion for any public office they think they can buy. Bobby should not be allowed to buy this seat. People really have to bust their butt for Sheila. Go to her website. Go to her great Dobie Gillis uh, clips showing next weekend. Make a contribution to her campaign. She is a true labor of ally. Sadly, this, you know, uh, great uh, labor federation that you have here is neutral in this race. Very, very discouraging. Maybe after the first round of the jungle primary, they'll finally be able to, you know, side with the labor candidate. But, you know, it would be helpful if they uh, were helping Sheila right now. So uh, uh, she sends her best and uh, is looking for your support, uh, hopefully in the first round to settle things for good. but in the runoff if one is necessary as well. Okay, uh, the brother there in the yellow, then the brother in the red, we have another sister. All right, we've got four hands here. You gotta, we got, the clock is ticking, so I don't wanna think speed dating at this point in the meeting. Well, real quickly, and I think Elena Samuels in your local rag did a great job of this with her profile of the UAW's attempt to uh, uh, rebound from its defeat at Volkswagen in Chattanooga with this uh, Nissan organizing campaign in Mississippi. Um, you know, much more community-based, much more drawing on the tradition of the civil rights movement, uh, bringing in students, bringing in people from churches, uh, you know, uh, tough environment, Mississippi, Tennessee, uh, Texas, uh, the whole South, but, um, you know, there is a model for building uh, so-called non-majority unions, or as Rand would say, pre-majority unions, uh, basically on the model of uh, voluntary membership. You know, you don't uh, have a closed shop there. You don't have a union shop. Uh, you don't even have bargaining rights if you're in the public sector. Doesn't mean you can't have a union. And uh, the UE in North Carolina, CWA with public employee groups in uh, Mississippi and uh, 
uh, Texas and, and Tennessee are among several unions that have tried to build a different model of organization in the South and I think have been quite quite successful. Uh, and uh, unions in the private sector that are trying to recover are going to have to adopt uh, some of those same more bottom-up, uh, more traditional approaches to, to union building. Uh, okay, the sister here? Nope. Okay, great. Uh, we've got Bob now, the brother in the red, but you had your hand up before? Yep. Yeah. From Unite Here, retiree? Yeah. Uh, uh, in terms of what Grant was just saying about the, the work, uh, the unions need to reach out and fight for the whole working class, uh, I thought that was what uh, Brother Trump was talking about at the last AFL-CIO convention until I read from Steve Early in labor notes that he was banned. I don't know if you can trust that guy. Uh, no, so Steve, I mean, I, I mean, I'm trying to sort that yeah. debate out, and so I, I would like you to uh, comment on it. I, my initial take on what uh, Trump was saying was, hey, that's really cool, until I read your article. You want to? No. <laughs> okay. No getting off the hook. Uh, look, I tried to be uh, balanced in assessing uh, last uh, fall's convention here. I, you know, I've only been to two AFL-CIO conventions in my whole life. I avoided them like the plague for through 42 years <laughs> in the labor movement. Uh, last fall was a hell of a lot better than the one a few years before in Pittsburgh. Uh, there was a lot of energy. There were a lot of allies assembled. Great focus on low-wage worker organizing, the role of immigrants in revitalizing the labor movement, uh, a, a desperate embrace of the workers' center movement. Uh, all of that's very positive and good. You know, my only concern, and I think it was shared by others, is there wasn't a lot of focus on rebuilding uh, the labor movement, you know, in, in, in its base, you know, where workers are under attack at Verizon, at Boeing, you know. Uh, if we can't defend uh, the higher standards of workers in industries uh, that are hugely profitable and still fairly heavily unionized, uh, the game is up. So I'm all for alternative forms of organization and community labor coalition building. I mean, I have to say, there was just a lot of hot air last year, right? I mean, a lot of PR. The AFL is going to invest more money in community labor coalition building. This is a tried and true model, a success, 25 years. You know what the AFL did last year? It cut its subsidy to Jobs of Justice nationally from 200,000 to 100,000. So, you know, behind the, the rhetoric is the reality of the real priorities, you know? And uh, so you don't need to go chasing after uh, things that people have already been building in many cities and states around the country just you know stop spending money uh, as much on your lavish conventions and put it into grassroots organizing through the jobs with justice network and at least some of our problems would be more easily addressed okay the, the word here and then bob yep. yeah yeah um my name's eric i i uh, i'm an engineer and unorganized Boeing subsidiary and uh, speak to i think kind of two trends i, I see in the labor movement and I think the, the sister from IWW was kind of speaking like, I think, one, there's a lot that, that you can see and hear about where unions aren't, you know, pushing. It seems like a game of like, let's see how little we can give away or sometimes even worse than that. And it's like, that's clearly not very inspiring to young workers and their own workers. And I look at that and it seems like the ultimate trend of that was on display a few months ago with the Volkswagen whatever that was, election, that with 
the, what the was support it? on both sides wasn't even able to win. And, and I kind of see that as sort of the ultimate, you know, the, the corporatization of, of that union uh, direction. And then on the other side, where, where it gets real interesting is, is, is that, that community engagement. Like the Chicago teachers, I think, did a great, just a phenomenal job with that, really putting down, you know, it wasn't a, a, a strike about wages, but about, you know, improving our, our city. And, and it seems so successful, but I see so little of that versus what I see of let's give this, let's give it. I, I'm with you. Uh, next week, we expect to see uh, 1,500 people, if not 2,000, in Chicago for this year's Labor Notes Conference. Uh, several hundred people will be coming from the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, Labor Notes has just published a wonderful new book called How to Jumpstart Your Union, kind of dissecting the CTU core reform group experience within the Chicago teachers. And uh, it's a wonderful model for how you can, you know, learn from uh, their success and apply it in other teachers, uh, unions, locals, as the UTLA reformers were doing even before the, the folks won in Chicago, and also apply uh, some of that great work to other unions. So I would check that out. And uh, definitely, as you said, reframing uh, the labor struggle so that it resonates more deeply in the broader community. Brother Bob, you're not going to depress us with any kind of serious economic analysis now, are you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. No. One of the left's foremost economists, uh, Brother Bob. Um, so we, we, we insisted back there, talked about getting young people involved, uh, talked about uh, unorganized, talked about unemployed, talked about militants who are employed. Well, we saw that exemplified probably the most exciting movement that we've had, which was Occupy. And we saw also that in a few places, Occupy was able to make a really exciting connection with labor and struggles like in Longview. Yep. But I would say that the uh, overall record of the labor movement was hardly anything to write home about, uh, to say the very least. And I'd like you guys to comment with some specificity about why you think response was either kind of lukewarm or negative or destructive or just you know so you know so low low level and I mean this was you talk about the opportunity this is the best one we've had this is one where the labor movement start out quite well very very well you know it was there in New York and they when, the, when they tried to shut down New York, the labor movement was there. But after that, the record is pathetic. I'm not even going to go into the details. I'd like you guys to talk a little bit about it. What, why and what can we do to make it different the next time? Okay. Well, I would say that, you know, the, the West Coast situation, the tensions between Occupy and the ILWU over Longview, you know, that's a long, complicated thing to get into kind of late in the evening. Maybe that's why Peter left. He knew this question was oh, coming up. Oh, still in the back. He's hiding in the back. Uh, let me just say from an East Coast perspective, because I was back there then, uh, I think the Occupy activity in New York City uh, uh, led to a great deal of very inspiring cross-fertilization between rank-and-file militants, certainly in 
in my own union, CWA at Verizon. Uh, there were reformers uh, challenging uh, the entrenched leadership of, of the largest Verizon local in, in, uh, in Manhattan and the Bronx at the very same time uh, that uh, Occupy uh, burst onto the scene, that they were waging the Verizon strike. You know, that story is told in Save Our Unions. And, you know, the, the, the stewards were inspired by the fact that you could go to Zuccotti Square, and it wasn't like a boring old business union meeting with sergeants at arms, you know, waiting to throw you out if you, you know, spoke up, right? That there's a different model uh, for decision making, for debate, for discussion, for developing strategy. And I know for sure uh, that there was a labor uh, occupy committee that emerged out of that cross fertilization, and there was a, a lot of rank and file gravitation towards the occupy movement in New York City from from rank and file reformers in CWA in the teachers union in transit workers local. 100, and uh, from the Teamsters who were involved in the struggle at, at Sotheby's at the time. So uh, I, I think, and I think that happened in other places. I mean, I, yeah, on my way back uh, from a book tour in, in the fall of, of uh, 2011, I stopped in Albany, and uh, the Occupy encampment there was uh, right across the street from Prince Andrew's, uh, you know, headquarters as, as governor. Uh, he was trying to get the mayor to evict them, and the local officials were actually saying, no, they have the right to kind of camp here in the, in the park. Uh, uh, there were Verizon workers, uh, you know, having a, uh, a post-strike rally. They had adopted the brilliant framing, you know, the 1% versus the 99%, a lot better than their own union's propaganda about how the Verizon strike was a defense of the middle class, right? Uh, and uh, they had a pig roast in the same park, and, you know, uh, upstate New York, uh, <laughs> CWA uh, plant technicians were fraternizing with people who do not eat pig, <laughs> who are vegetarians at best and probably vegan. So, uh, you know, I saw a real-life example of people from very different working-class cultures, the precariat and the traditional upstate New York, you know, blue-collar working class thrown together uh, right out there under, uh, under Andrew Cuomo's uh, window. Let's hope someday uh, they toss him and people like him out of the places that they currently occupy, because we certainly need to do that. What, uh, one, one comment, which is just a piece of news, that uh, workers from two different unions, the nurses' union and the, the uh, other staff union in North Adams, Massachusetts, a small mill town in the western part of the state, have occupied the hospital to keep it open and North Adams uh, Regional Hospital, because there won't be any regional health care if they close that hospital. It's not profitable, but, you know, that's not the criteria for keeping uh, a vital health care institution. I don't think that would have happened were it not for the Occupy movement. Okay, we're getting the high sign from the boss of all bosses at Skylight. Brother Gene, you are the closer. Top of the ninth, you have uh, one minute. My question is, do you agree with what I'm about to say? <laughs> if you say it briefly, I will agree to anything you say. When something's dying, something's being born. Sounds like a good formula to me. Yes. I'll, I'll just say the work that I do day in, day out is I, I direct the Human Leadership Institute at Cornell University, and I deal with emerging labor and union leaders. Uh, traditional unions and work organizations, we're training them together. And uh, as we know, 88% of the American workforce has no experience in collective bargaining. And we also know, if you look at the Shanker Institute report two years ago, they studied McGraw-Hill and other books and textbooks, and Americans 
high schools say very little and completely distorted information about the central role that labor has played in building American democracy to the extent that it exists. Uh, capitalism has done, capital has done an extremely good job putting us where we are now, but we have to take responsibility in the labor movement broadly defined for building a new future. That's why I say in an optimistic way, when something's dying and something is dying, something is being born and something is being born. And just the young folks from here, by WW, are here in the back. That's just one example, and Occupy is another. So a great note on which to end. So we're going to thank you, Gene. Um, we're now going to get the book. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.